Well, we've reached the end of our series in the first few chapters of Matthew's Gospel. By next Sunday, we'll be beginning our series in the book of James. And this is a fitting end to the sort of series of miracles that we've been seeing through Matthew. So this booming voice of God in verse 17. We've had angels and stars and virgin births. And in particular, we've had the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, predictions from long ago. And we've a few times, we've just stopped to imagine what that would be like today. So let's um, let's pick on our Prime Minister. Uh, So imagine a a prediction of Rishi Sunak of this kind of level. So uh, Isaiah, our Isaiah reading was written 300 years or so before Jesus. So imagine in 1723, a prediction of a Prime Minister born in Southampton. It seems... Very unlikely. Uh, Or um, a prime minister who is 43 years old. Far too young, in my view, to be prime minister. Uh, Or a teetotaler. Uh, Or someone with parents of Indian descent. uh, The son of immigrants. I don't know which the the, the 1720s would have found hardest to understand. A teetotaler as prime minister. Uh, But it puts beyond doubt the idea that Jesus Christ is miraculous, if this is right. The end of our Isaiah reading, I've announced in advance so that you would know. It also puts beyond doubt uh, who Jesus is and what he is for. That's what Matthew's been doing for us. Help us understand who Jesus is and what he is for. And in Matthew 3, uh, we have this sort of slightly strange conversation between John and Jesus. Jesus arrives to be baptized and John says, no, there's no way I should baptize you. You're the real baptizer. And Jesus says, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. And again, fulfill of the Old Testament has been this big, big idea. So what does that mean? What is it he's fulfilling? And then there is this huge miraculous moment. It looks like any other baptism to begin with. He's in the queue. He stands in the river. He goes under the water. But then uh, the heavens are opened. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. uh, And a voice, God speaks and identifies, this is my son. And when God speaks there in verse 17, which is really what we're going to look at for the whole of our time, he is speaking... But he is also quoting uh, that what God says is made up of quotations from the Old Testament. And even if we don't know that, even if we don't know where these are coming from, what he says is huge, isn't it? This is God's son, my son, and I love him and I'm pleased with him. It's a, a sort of underwriting of everything that Jesus then goes on to say and do. But when you know the background, when you know what it is that uh, is being put together in verse 17, well then there's even more to see. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning, uh, is looking at uh, where that quote comes from. So here are our three points, but the third really will just be very brief and a conclusion at the end. Um, This is God sent his servant, and that is Isaiah 42, that was our reading. And then for the second point, we'll go to Psalm 2. Uh, this is God sent his son. Uh, and then perhaps a surprise at the end is what the servant, what the son achieved together. Bring righteousness. And that relates to our puzzling verse, verse 15, about fulfilling all righteousness. So first of all, God sent his 
servant. And in the combination, uh, the quote, the, the title, my son, that comes from Psalm 2, but most of the content is from Isaiah 42. And uh, with Isaiah 42 open, this is the long-promised solution to Israel's problem. We looked last week at Isaiah 40, so two chapters before when uh, John the Baptist was quoted as the, the voice preparing the way for the Lord. Uh, so the servant is the answer. Uh, long-promised, the Spirit descends on him as the, the starting gun. It's Pentecost Sunday today. Well, the Spirit comes to all Christians only because the Spirit-filled Saviour did his work first. And then in Isaiah, that he is loved uh, and God is pleased with him. And in Isaiah, you have this huge promise, Isaiah 40, we're going to restore Israel. Who's going to do that? Answer, Isaiah 42, the servant will. So I'm just going to put up some of those verses, uh, and you'll see the links to Matthew 3. Here is my servant. Uh, This is the one I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, and I will put my spirit on him. To do what? To bring justice, the word in blue there. And that might be a surprise in terms of how we normally think about the servant. Um, Justice and righteousness, the word we have in Matthew 3, they are very, very closely related ideas. Um, the, The words they include are normal idea of what justice is. So justice when victims are protected and vindicated, when truth is determined, a judge says this is actually what happened, when the guilty are punished. Uh, perhaps here in London, we think maybe of a, a mistreated employee uh, who receives her job back. Uh, maybe in a rural economy like the one this was written out of, the orphan gets their farm back or the widow gets her house back. Just Justice has been done. But in Matthew, it also includes the idea of a status, uh, a righteous status, which is the, the label hung around your neck when you leave the courthouse. So when John the Baptist has crowds come to him at the Jordan, they come as the guilty. They come, don't they? They come to confess their sins. They repent. They say they're going to try and change their lives. But they don't leave the way that the guilty normally leave the courthouse. They don't leave as prisoners heading into some sort of rehabilitation. They leave as the righteous. They leave like uh, the vindicated hero, like someone falsely accused and then cleared of all the charges, as if in court they, they played that video that put it beyond doubt. It wasn't me, it was someone else. I guess um, the most famous one I've read recently is the post office one. Uh, all of those employees accused of stealing, imprisoned in many cases, their town all thought they were guilty, blamed. And now, uh, with their names cleared, compensated, and righteous, they leave the courthouse. But in Matthew 3, this is strange, because this is for people who confess that they are guilty. It's about the guilty made just, made righteous. But maybe that fits when we look at the Isaiah verses and see the kind of person that the servant is. So verse 2 there tells us he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. So he is, he's not shouty, but there's more. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. 
In Isaiah, that is talking about the people of Israel. So the people who had failed over generation after generation after generation. It's addressing those in exile, uh, which is where they've been sent because of their guilt. So the servant of God, when he comes, he could be someone who comes to shout, could be someone to say, that that's it. All chances are over. But verse 3 tells us he is not that kind of man at all. Uh, he is someone who comes to see, is there anything left? Is there the least glimmer of life left? He's crouching and he's, he's blowing on the smoldering wick, sort of sheltering it in his hands. Can it be brought back to life? Uh, he's in the mud trying to do first aid on broken blades of grass. It's the kind of thing that a, you know, a tearful toddler would do, wouldn't it? It's my favorite blade of grass. Can you not fix it? Except here, every expectation is that the servant will succeed in all that he does. The spirit of God who will baptize with fire, that brings the, the flame back to life. And the spirit of God that brings life to the dead. So Jesus stoops in the mud with the bruised blade of grass, and nurses it back to health. It's an incredibly tender picture, isn't it, of what the servant will do. You can see why um, God would love him. You can see why he might be the answer to a sinful people lost in exile. But verse 3 and verse 4 use the same vocabulary in ways that we can't see in English. Um, it says that he, um, he won't, he, the bruised reed he won't break, the smoldering wick he won't snuff out. And we tend to think, don't we, that um, gentle means weak. And that quiet and gentle, we tend to think normally means fails, won't work. But verse 3, uh, bruised and snuff out, comes into verse 4. Jesus, he will not be snuffed out. It's the same word. And he will not be bruised, discouraged, the same word. It's about the fact that Jesus is unstoppable. as He, do. he is gentle and also he is relentless as he establishes justice on earth. And again, see that is the goal, verse 1. Uh, the words in blue, he will bring justice to the nations everywhere. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice, verse 3, till he establishes justice, verse 4. He will achieve justice, which must include both justice for the victims and this righteousness for the guilty that we've been talking about. In Isaiah 40, that is the promise. Uh, tell Israel that her sin has been paid for. So back in Matthew, you can see that there is huge expectation for what this servant will do. And in Matthew verse 5, verse 6 of chapter 3, there's huge need. Got this sort of enormous crowds coming to say that they are guilty. Individually, we all know that sensation, don't we? Where you, you realize uh, that you've done something wrong, you're guilty, that feeling of shame, that sense that, that I've got to go and try and put this right, I've got to go and say sorry. Rarely does that feeling strike a, a whole nation all at the same time. Uh, perhaps in some places after World War II, 
uh, perhaps beginning to uh, after colonialism now. But this moment in AD 30, 33, Jesus arrives just as the nation realizes that they are guilty and come pouring out to John the Baptist, hoping there will be an answer. Jesus arrives as the mender of reeds and the the relighter of candles at that moment of guilt and of hope. And in Isaiah, you, you can't really understand how you could do this. Bring perfect justice and make the guilty righteous. You can't understand it until chapter 52, or 53. So there's these songs about the servant that build up a picture of what the servant will do. And perhaps uh, write that down, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. That might be what you want to do on your bank holiday. Just read ahead and read those. This servant, he takes on the guilt himself personally, and he dies. In Isaiah 42, it says that the, uh, the sins are paid for because a double has been found. In other words, a, a perfect match to the sins, to cover them over. And in Matthew's book, The Account of Jesus, uh, the conclusion is the death of Jesus. This is where the sins are paid for. This is how, Matthew 1.21, this baby will save his people from their sins. Uh, we'll look at Matthew chapter 4. No sooner has God said, this is my son whom I love, uh, immediately the devil comes to tempt Jesus. And the temptation is, if you are the son of God, do it this way. The temptation is, be a son of God without suffering. Be a king without paying for your people's sins. And we can understand why Jesus would not want to suffer. But I think also knowing that he did, we can understand why his father loves him and is so pleased with him. Well, that's the servant. Uh, We come next to the son. God sent his son. And the the text underneath this is Psalm 2. But Psalm 2 builds on any number of texts about Israel's kings as the son of God. And we had that in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is the son of David. But he's also uh, of virgin birth. He is the son of God. And this idea that Jesus is the royal son of God, that brings a a different tone to this announcement at the beginning of Jesus' life. Uh, Later in Matthew, in chapter 21, Jesus himself tells a story about a, a landowner, a landowner who sent messengers to some bad tenants. And uh, it says he sent messengers and, and Jesus means people like Isaiah. People like John the Baptist. And as messengers, they were ignored and even killed in the story, as in fact John the Baptist will be by halfway through Matthew's gospel. Then in in Jesus' story, last of all, it says he sent his son to them. And in the story, you ask, well, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Um, It's slightly wistful. Even naive, the the father says, they will respect my son. Certainly that is how it should be, isn't it? When the son comes, Uh, imagine a a family business. I've um, I've known uh, three generations in a business, grandfather, father and daughter teams running a a butcher shop in East London. Uh, It's the family business. You've got the name above the door and you've got it printed on the, the delivery vans. Uh, I've also known that, you know, the senior partner in the law firm, again, with the name above the 
slightly taller door uh, and printed on the, on the business cards. How should it go when the son or daughter of the family arrives, when they come to the, the butcher shop uh, one morning? Dad says, the delivery, the delivery's got to go out in the van at once. They've run out of sausages at the George or whatever it is. If you say no to little Jimmy or little Jess, um, you're not just saying no to an eight-year-old uh, child. You are saying no to the owner and proprietor. You're saying no to your boss. So Matthew 3, here is the Son of God, sent to our world at its point of greatest need. And Jesus tells that story of the landowner in the week of his death, and he tells it to the people who are plotting to kill him. And uh, he doesn't tell it naively or wistfully. In fact, he intends for them to kill him. He knows he's the servant of Isaiah 53. He needs them to kill him. He tells it to demonstrate how wrong they are. Thieves and rebels, he's calling them. And he also tells it as a threat. He, He finishes the story saying that the rejected stone himself will be the cornerstone. And now that is normally an impossible thing to achieve after your death, isn't it? You can't say that to the people who are going to kill you. You wait, I'll be back. You'll be sorry. So do you see this quote in Matthew 3 verse 17, our key verse? It requires both the crucifixion and also the resurrection to make sense. The the murdered servant... He is also the raised and victorious king who brings justice and righteousness even to those who rejected him. Do you see the different tone to the announcement? I think that helps with what we looked at at the end of last week. Chapter 3, verse 11, verse 12. Um, If you're not sure how those verses could possibly fit with the gentle servant, well, it's very important we bring the two together. And I think it works Because we have two time periods described here. The first time period is the time for mercy. It's the time for repentance. It's the time for reaching out to just the least, is there the least glimmer of a smoldering wick inside you? Then Jesus will reach out and meet you and embrace you and start CPR on the the bruised blade of grass. First time period. But in these verses, there is also a second time period. The second one, once it is too late to ask for mercy. And that is John the Baptist's message, verse 1. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, It's urgent. There's still time before it is too late. That's the reason for his bluntness with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Starts in verse 7, but verse 10, the axe is right there at the root. Repent before it is too late. And we said last week, um, just flip over to 4 verse 17. We said last week it would surprise many people to discover that Jesus' message is exactly the same as John's. 4 verse 17 is word for word the same as 3 verse 2. Perhaps a surprise to us to hear the servant speaking the exact same words as John the Baptist. It's entirely deliberate from Matthew. These are his summaries 
of the preaching of the two men. Uh, Both people who would have preached long sermons said many things. Matthew has chosen to summarize them identically. And we said last week, John the Baptist clearly is an uncompromising prophet of repentance. And Jesus, he is the same, the same but more. And perhaps that leaves us puzzled. How does repentance, this sort of aggressive talk of repentance, how does it fit with save us from our sins, which we normally think of as if it was simply kindness uh, and generosity? I think within our denomination, the Church of England, there would be a lot of just simple puzzlement about that. Even in places, there would be um, hatred of this message of John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, that that is something hurtful. And I think we will um, naturally not like the idea of repentance if we don't understand righteousness and justice. Um, God did not send Jesus simply to be kind. That's That's an insufficient summary of what Jesus is here for. The servant and the son... They are here to bring righteousness. That's the goal. Bring justice. Bring righteousness. And there are these two periods of time. There is the first one in which you may have it as a gift. A period of time in which the servant of God, he will accept your sins. He will take them from you. He will carry them to the cross and pay the punishment for them as if they were his. A period in which you may become righteous. You may get that, that status of the, the vindicated postmaster or postmistress, leaving the old Bailey in triumph, but given to those who could never, ever deserve it because of the death of Jesus. But also there is a second time period when it will be too late for that, when you may no longer have righteousness as a gift, And yet he will bring justice everywhere. And always for for all of us, each of us, uh, that time when it's too late, it comes at least at the point of our death, when after our death we meet Jesus as the Son of God and as our judge, after all of our decisions have been made. Um, Frequently though, and sadly, it, it appears for many people to come sooner than that, uh, as if there was a, a moment when we, we decide to harden our hearts in Bible language. Uh, perhaps we, we see the offer of mercy, but perhaps we also see what we spoke about last week. We see what it would mean to accept that, what it would mean for the addictive drug that is our sin. And we refuse to walk away from the sin that's killing us, and we, we build walls to keep Jesus out. And in the end, for the the nation of Israel, it came as a a moment in history. And uh, that's the moment that John the Baptist is pointing forwards to when he says, repent now, uh, because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And that's the same moment that Jesus ends his um, landowner-tenant parable with. If you reject Jesus, God will take away your land and your temple, which is what happened in AD 70 within the lifetime of those who heard Jesus say that it would happen. And all of that points us to the equivalent final day for all human beings, uh, for people of every race and every nation and every creed. Uh, The Lord Jesus warns us of a, a day when this world, full of its injustice, will be drawn to an end. 
and that it's no more you know, acceptable to talk about that day than it is to talk about repentance, because they go together. But God, he sent a prophet, a servant, and a son to tell us about it, to warn us about a day when it will be too late. And 3 verse 12 that we saw last week talks about it in terms of harvest that day. day when um, Jesus will do this hard physical labor at harvest that will bring the wheat, which in context must be the sinful but now repentant and now made righteous. He will bring those into his barn to be with him. And when the chaff will be placed in the fire which in context must mean the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who think they're okay because of who their father was and those who do not repent, perhaps cannot even see their guilt and cannot even see why Jesus might consider them for the fire. It's a, it's a very serious message here in the heart of um, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it would be very hard, wouldn't it, to hear Jesus talk about hell, which is where he takes this language of fire, if we didn't also see in him the behavior of the servant. Think of all the people that he meets, uh, where he draws people in, people who everybody else would condemn. He's eating with tax collectors, where he says, woman, neither do I condemn you, where the prodigal son is embraced and restored. It would be very hard to hear Jesus talk about hell if we didn't also see his servant work on the cross, where Jesus takes an equivalent of hell for anybody who will ask him, not, um, not just a, a way out, but a perfect double and a match for the punishment we deserve. And it is, I think, very hard to hear Jesus talk about hell because we cannot bear the thought of anyone, I cannot bear the thought of anyone that I know going there. But this, it is an unavoidable part of the the thousand-year prediction of Jesus' arrival. It's an unavoidable part of his goal and purpose, which is the bringing of justice and righteousness. Unless we choose to believe that every other part of this whole matrix of prediction and fulfillment and announcement, all of the rest of it is true, except this bit alone. This bit, the purpose of it all. That there would be justice everywhere when the servant comes and the son is on the throne. And what I want to do is just show you in Psalm 2 uh, why I think God chooses that uh, to show. So again, it'll be up on the screen or the page number is there as well. Uh, psalm 2 is a psalm that tells a story. And the, the first verse, if you like, or verses 1 to 3, the first uh, chorus, is the story of a rebellion. God picked a king, an anointed one, but the nation said, um, we do not want to be ruled. And they gather an army outside the gates. Let us break their chains. And then the next section has the laughter of God. God finds it funny that human beings would tell him to think again. He says, this is my king. Uh, What do you think you're doing? It's like the story of Herod in Matthew 2. Herod thought he was so powerful. He thought that he could kill this tiny little baby. And God said, no, that is my king. That is my choice of king. Uh, There's no way you can disrupt this. And in the next section... 
uh, God now speaks to the man on the throne. Uh, This is not just God's king. He said to me, you are my son. This is Jimmy or Jess come to the butcher shop with an urgent message from the owner, except the the son now is fully grown and prepared for rule and will take what is his. And you can shout outside kings of the earth as much as you want, but God has installed his son on the throne. And verse 9 there, the final sentence up on the screen, is the same terrifying picture as Matthew 3 verse 12, isn't it? Uh, It's not that there is a sort of Old Testament world in which God's king does things like break people with a rod of iron and then a New Testament world where that is replaced. Uh, The rebellious kings, they wanted to be king instead of God's son. And the son will smash them. It's a terrifying picture. But the close of the psalm, the writer turns and speaks to us. And uh, the picture is of the two periods of time again. Uh, The rebellious army outside the gates, they still have time. Time to be wise, verse 10. Uh, Time to come inside and kiss the son, verse 12. In other words, time to throw themselves on his mercy. And if they won't, destruction in the end is the only other option. The day will come when it will be too late. Uh, But now, now is the time in the psalm, uh, as in Matthew 3, when the guilty can take refuge in him. Do you see it's the same package of ideas that John the Baptist relies on, that Jesus talks about? You have the guilty who confess, who repent centrally. Here it's saying Jesus is king now, not me. And then as they come inside to see the king, amazingly, it's a journey not to the dungeons. You'd expect that. Wouldn't you imagine being the the king coming in from your army outside where you've tried to kill Jesus? You stumble in and fall at his feet. You expect to be thrown in the dungeons and receive instead a kiss. Or um, end of the verse, a refuge, a blessing. Told that you are righteous now. So that's the overall message of the, the psalm. Uh, We have a rebellious people, us. God says, no, I have my king. He is my son. And the advice to kiss the son while there is still time to take refuge. It's the the same application as uh, Matthew 3 verse 2, isn't it? John the Baptist says, repent. It's the same application as Jesus in Matthew 4 verse 17. Jesus invites us to come to him and find refuge. Well, our conclusion is our third point, that all of this is to bring righteousness. And do you remember our our curious verse, verse 15, that Jesus, his way of saying, I should be baptized, even though he has nothing to repent of, is to say we should do this to fulfill all righteousness. See, that's not an accidental phrase. That is his whole purpose, God's purpose in sending him. He is a a righteousness machine. That is what Jesus achieves. And by being baptized in the queue, he is uh, saying, I'm here for these people, those who will repent like this. He's saying, this is my purpose to bring righteousness. And from Isaiah 42 and from Psalm 2, there is no doubt, is there, that he will succeed. 
But there are these two ways that this could be done for you and me. Um, I thought of saying at this point, would you, do you want to meet the servant or the son? But actually that's not right. Their, their ministry overlaps. The servant is relentless and the servant will bring justice. Where he doesn't find that flicker of uh, smoldering wick, um, he will be judged just as much as the son is. And the son, the son is merciful even to the worst rebel who wanted him dead. Uh, kiss him while there is time. And the, the crowd who heard the landowner story, the tenant landowner story, they were the same crowd who yelled crucify only days later and caused Jesus to be killed. They were the same crowd who uh, 40 days later or so discovered that you cannot actually kill God's king that he is alive. And they were the same crowd that were made an offer on Pentecost Day that we remember today. Uh, And guess what the offer was? When Peter stood up on Pentecost Day, his offer was the same. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, it's the same message. Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, the same message. And we live still in that first period of time today. Period of time when you can be made righteous as a gift if you will take the offer. And others can. Uh, the light to all the nations if we will take that message to them. So I'm going to pray before we sing of Jesus' love for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus as your great servant and your great son. We thank you for his mercy. We thank you for his justice. And we pray, our Father, that we would not harden our hearts, that you would open our blind eyes, and you would bring us to receive mercy from him as we repent and turn to him. And we thank you for the love, the embrace that we find there when we turn to Jesus. In his name. Amen.